This message was presented at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Okay, we want to um, continue with our series talking about atheism, rejection of the existence of God, apatheism, just spiritual apathy, why does any of this matter, and Adventism, and how these three things can come into dialogue. This session we want to talk about the existence of God. How can we know that God exists? So before we begin, let me say a quick word of prayer, and then we'll jump right in. Father, what a joy it is for us to know you, and to be known by you. To be fully loved by someone who fully knows us. Incredible. Father, we pray right now as we spend some time talking about you, that we don't just get lost in abstract argument. But we keep at the forefront of our minds this, this intimate knowledge of you, this speaking with you as a friend, that we might better share this experience and joy with those around us who, who maybe don't yet have that knowledge of you. Father, we find our peace and our security in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we want to talk about the existence of God. A quick reminder, in our first session, we came across this Council of Peter, where Peter tells us that one of the ways we honor Christ is by always being prepared to give a response to those who might ask for the reason for the hope that's in you. Notice that the picture that Peter has is, is ahead of time. We've thought about and we've prepared. right? We recognize these questions are going to come. Peter also has in view here that, that you have within you some kind of living hope that transforms the way you live so people are actually asking you questions. Right? I, I remember this, my, my, my first day of college. I, I grew up in Florida, but I flew out to, to California to go to Stanford University. It was my, my first day. Orientation. I didn't know anyone there. I was, I was trying to get settled down. And we had lunch. In the lunch I went, I got a, a vegetarian lunch option. You know, I sat down, and the person next to me, she looks at me. I don't know how she knew. She, she saw I was a vegetarian option. I guess she thought I was a nice guy or something. And And from that, she she asked, are you a Seventh-day Adventist? And I was just, like, taken aback because, you know, I'm I'm, I'm trying to fit into college, trying to make friends. I don't know. Whoa, you know, how do you know this? But I was not prepared. I did not know what to say. But Peter's saying that we need to be prepared to not only articulate our hope, but also to be able to give reasons for it. But the great thing is Peter goes on to tell us that that our approach really matters. That as we engage with these things, we should not come from a posture of fear. We should make sure that we're we're exhibiting gentleness and respect. That that in our conversation, we're honest and and we we, we, uh, avoid any kind of straw men. That that we exercise the principle of charity so that we can have a good conscience. And that we exhibit good behavior. I remember another friend, I, I spent a summer with him at a university, and later I was catching up with him via email, and, and we were talking about the importance of exploring different worldviews, trying to understand how people see the world. He, he's not Christian, grew up in a kind of a secular background. His father was Hindu, so he was kind of religiously all over the place. But he said something to me. He said, you know, I've discovered that the way I can know what someone believes is by watching how they live. And when he said that, it struck me with so much force because I was thinking, wow, I wonder what I said to him by the way I lived, right? And so, so Peter's reminding us that we need to have good arguments, but we also need to have a life that's characterized by this good behavior. 
This echoes the, the counsel of Ellen White, where she reminds us that, that, that the Savior knew that argument, no matter how logical it is, would not be able to melt hard hearts. Something else is needed. We can reach minds, but people also have hearts, and if they're hardened, you won't be able to reach them by force of argument. But that love will do that which argument will fail to accomplish. And so we need to have a, a characterized by love in interactions with others. The strongest argument is what? The strongest argument we're told in Ministry of Healing is a loving and lovable Christian. You both love them and you're able to be loved. You have to be lovable as well, right? You can't be a difficult, difficult, thorny person. Okay, so, so with that context in mind, we want to think about this issue of belief in God. We saw it was one of the largest objections that non-religious people have is, is that many of them just say, I just don't believe in God. So here's some more data on this. Looking at Americans, this is from last year, 2017, we see, when asked, do you believe in God, about 80% of people say yes, and 19% say no. There's some other 1%, and you know, I don't know what their view is, but 80% say yes, and roughly 20% say no. But then you can further break it down, and of the 80% who say yes, only 56% of them believe in the God of the Bible. Well, that's 56% say they believe in the God of the Bible. If you further interrogate them, you realize they maybe have some non-biblical ideas about God. But about 56% say they believe in God. Why 23% say they have some other notion of God. Maybe God is some kind of spiritual force or some vague idea, some, some kind of higher power that's ill-defined or some other religious conception of God. And then if you break it down of those who, who say, no, they do not believe in God, Again, a number of them, about half of them, 9%, say that they also have some conception of some higher power. They they just don't call it God. And then you're left with the last 10% who don't believe in any kind of higher power at all. And so that's kind of the religious breakdown. There's a a significant number, 10%, who have no belief in God. When you add it up, it's about a third, 33%, who have some vague idea of some kind of higher power out there. And then the rest, 56%, claim to believe in the God of the Bible, regardless of what views of that God they may actually hold. But this issue of belief in God leads to a question of of how does belief or faith in God relate to evidence? The atheist critique is that faith is that thing that goes against evidence. So Richard Dawkins, you may have heard of him, he's a well-known atheist, puts it this way. He says, faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade, evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. And so, for him as an atheist, when he hears people say that they believe in God, he's thinking, well, that means they believe in God despite there being a lack of evidence. Or even when they say that they have faith, that's them saying, I believe despite there being no reason to believe. Who believes that Dawkins characterizes faith correctly? Is that how you understand faith? Faith is believing despite having no good reason to believe? Yeah, I find that Christians often characterize faith a little bit differently. Notice how Ellen White characterizes it in the book Steps to Christ. She describes faith this way. God never asks us to believe without giving sufficient evidence upon which to base our faith. That is a world of difference different than how Richard Dawkins understands faith. He says faith is believing despite the lack of evidence, or even because of the lack of evidence. 
But here we're told that God doesn't ask us to believe without giving us sufficient evidence. His existence, his character, the truthfulness of his word are all established by testimony that appeals to our reason. And this testimony is abundant. So the existence of God isn't wishful thinking. It appeals to the intellect. It appeals to our reason. She goes on to explain, Yet God has never removed the possibility of doubt. Our faith must rest upon evidence, not demonstration. Those who wish to doubt will have opportunity, while those who really wish to know the truth will find plenty of evidence on which to base their faith. That's Steps to Christ, page 105. And so notice what's going on here. In the dialogue about faith, there's a fundamental disagreement over the definition. When the atheist hears faith, he or she thinks that faith is believing something despite there being no evidence. And so when they hear you say, I have faith in God, they think that's the end of the discussion. They're like, oh, well, that's nice you choose to believe that, but there's no evidence for it. Whereas when we as Christians talk about faith, we believe that God is not acting contrary to our reason, but God has provided sufficient evidence that appeals to our reason. And so when we begin to talk with an atheist about belief in God, it's important from the very beginning we define our terms. And we make clear, I'm not saying I believe in God as some wishful thinking. I believe there's really good reasons that appeal to intellect, that, that, that make sense. I experienced it this last summer, a, de- a demonstration of faith. I was in Zimbabwe. Who here has been to Zimbabwe? Beautiful country. Are you from Zimbabwe by chance? Ah, fantastic. So I was in Zimbabwe, and while I was there, I was, I was visiting Vic Falls, Victoria Falls. If you haven't seen Victoria Falls before, imagine combining the Grand Canyon with Niagara Falls, right? So you have this huge canyon-like structure with a fantastic waterfall. And some fool decided to put a zip line across Vic Falls. And so, of course, when I was there, being the fool that I am, I'm like, I have to zip line across the falls, right? Now... Before I did the zip line, I did some research online. I mean, what kinds of questions would you ask before zip line across Vic Falls? Yeah, I mean, how many people have died doing this? How often has the cable broke, right? So I looked for some evidence that this thing was safe. Before I took any action, I wanted to have evidence for it. Even when I got there and I was getting strapped in, I asked the guy, okay, when's the last time you fixed this cable? When's the last time it broke? You know, I wanted to make sure it was safe. But it wasn't merely becoming convinced that it was safe. I then decided to act upon that conviction, and I actually went down, there's me on the zip line, went down the zip line, and enjoyed the beautiful view of Victoria Falls. Faith is like this. It, it begins by, it looks at evidence, it sees that there's good reasons, but then it does something else. You take a step or a leap of faith. What is that step or that leap? That's not you going against the evidence. That's you saying, now I'm going to act on it. I, I, I saw there's really good reason to, to trust in the safety of this thing. I saw that, you know, there's a good history. It's reliable. It's a faithful zip line. And now I'm going to exercise my faith by actually going down it. Does that make sense? So, so faith is not merely a cognitive awareness of the reliability of something. It's us acting upon that. So when you look at the Gospel of John, for instance, it uses the word believe or faith, it's the same word in Greek, several times, but never as a noun. 
Faith is not something you have. It's always a verb. It's something you do. You believe. You exercise faith. So faith is this dynamic thing. What is faith? It's, it's, I've seen that there's sufficient reason, there's compelling reason to trust the reliability of this thing, of this person, of God. And now I'm going to exercise my trust in God. I'm going to take that step. So that's what biblical faith is. It's an action. It's us stepping out. It's jumping out of the plane with your parachute on. But it's informed by, but I did some research to make sure that the parachute's going to, going to release and I'm going to be safe, right? So it's an action. It goes beyond merely a cognitive awareness, but it doesn't go against the evidence. It's an action that's based upon the evidence. It's really important because when we're engaging with individuals trying to reach them, it's not enough for us merely to convince them of the evidence. We're told in Acts of the Apostles, page 239, no eloquence of words, no force of argument can convert the sinner. The power of God alone can apply truth to the heart. So, so there's a limit that we're trying to convince someone of something. It's not enough for us merely to make an argument we realize that, that they're going to have to take that step. They're going to have to have truth applied to the heart. They're going to have to exercise saving faith in God. So then what then is the role of argument? The arguments themselves don't save people. But I believe arguments do three really important jobs. The first job of an argument is it can help someone overcome intellectual barriers to faith. You know, if that zip line had a bad reputation and I thought that it was unsafe, I would never get on it. But if someone was able to show me that, no, it's actually really safe and reliable, then I might actually take the step and get on the zip line and exercise my faith. The second is, in addition to helping overcome those intellectual barriers people may have, faith, um, the arguments also help fortify our own faith. When we see that, that there's good reason to believe in God and his existence and the reliability of his word, it can secure our own faith so that when we go through difficult times or maybe don't feel the presence of God, the arguments have fortified your faith so that you can persist in faith. And the third thing that I believe faith does, that, that these arguments can do, is they reveal the, the sense-making power of the Christian faith. So C.S. Lewis, when he converted to Christianity, he put it this way. He, he had grown up an, an atheist. In his 20s, he came to accept the Christian hope. And he said, I came to believe in Christianity as I believe in the risen Son." Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. And so when we make arguments from the Christian faith, we're showing the power of the Christian faith to make sense of the world, to make sense of your experience. Tomorrow morning, in our first seminar, we'll be talking about science. And I'll be giving some arguments from science. And what I'm doing here is I'm showing the power of the Christian faith to make sense of the physical world around us. In the next presentation after that, We'll talk about Genesis and the fall. And in there, I'll be showing the power of the Christian worldview to make sense of our human experience. And so what we're doing with our arguments is we're showing that Christianity is, is what Ellen White put it this way. She said, Christ, his character and work, is the center and circumference of all truth. In him is the complete system of truth. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to communicate this, this sense-making power of Christianity how Christianity can make sense of the world as a whole, and then invite people to take that next step. Let me give you an example of how this might play out. The Christian hope has as its foundation the resurrection of Christ. 
For many people, this is how they come to a knowledge of God. They see, well, look, if God rose Christ from the dead, then indeed he must exist. And so the resurrection of Christ is a powerful evidence for, the, for also the, the, the existence of God. It's, we come to know God through Christ. And there's really good evidence for the resurrection. One of them is the way in which the resurrection is able to make sense of historical data. So let me go through some of that data. The first data point is that of the many Jewish sects and, and messiahs that existed in the first century, and there were quite a few in the first century, Acts chapter, four, Acts chapter 5 goes through and reviews them. and It says, this Messiah figure rose up and he tried to lead some rebellion against the, the Romans. Then he was put to dead. He was killed. He was crucified. And you know what happened to his followers? They all faded out. And then some other Messiah figure rose up and he tried to lead some, some crusade against the, the Romans. And then he was crucified and it died out. And so Acts 5 goes through this history. And in Acts 5, it's making the point that, well, you know, if this Jesus movement is not of God, you would expect the same thing. It would rise up. When the leader is killed, it would die out. But that's not what happened with Christianity. Christianity flourished. Even despite the fact that this idea of a crucified Messiah was foolish to both the Greeks and the Jews. It's not the kind of thing you make up to get a gathering, right? I mean, your leader had just been killed, And the idea of resurrection was so alien to both Jewish and Greek thought that it was a big stumbling block for them. Paul writes about this a number of times throughout the New Testament, how how the crucifixion, how the fact that we follow someone who was crucified as a criminal is a stumbling block for both the Greeks and the Jews. The the Greeks in their philosophy cannot conceive of of God becoming man and being crucified. And and the the Jews, they're like, resurrection doesn't take place to the end of the age. How could that have taken place? It was very surprising. It's not the kind of thing you would make up. The culture as a whole mocked resurrection. You, you can see this when Paul is preaching to the philosophers at Mars Hill. He's going through and giving this really compelling case to, to accept Christ as Messiah. And they're tracking with him. They're with him. They're with him. They're with him. Until he says, resurrection. And the moment he brings up resurrection, you can see in Acts 17, they're all like, whoa, what? Like, that's... We don't believe that stuff, right? And so the very idea of resurrection was just culturally foreign to them. It was, it was something that was despised by them. And so you see that, okay, this does not seem to be the kind of thing you would make up if you want to start a, a movement. And yet still, for some reason, they flourished. You can also look at the disciples. And as you read the account of the disciples in the Gospels, you see that they were individuals who were altogether fearful. They, they ran away at the crucifixion of Christ First of all, if they had been making up that history, they probably would have presented themselves more favorably, right? But if they actually were afraid, then, then what transformed them from being a group of individuals that were afraid and terrified and given up hope to individuals who were boldly proclaiming the gospel, even in the face of persecution and violent deaths? Nearly all the apostles, with the exception of John, died violent deaths. John died in captivity. He didn't have a comfortable life either. There's also the fact that when you look at John, in John chapter 20, it tells us that the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection were women. Which may be fine today, but if you go back to the first century, the testimony of a woman was not considered as valid as the testimony of a man. So again, if you were making this thing up, why would you include these details? This was a stumbling block. The early Christian church was criticized by being a movement for women. 
because it elevated women and expressed so much dignity to women that they would criticize it. You know, men in society couldn't take it very seriously because it was so at odds with the Roman and Greek culture. In addition to that, you have this character, Paul. And Paul is someone who had a great career. He was persecuting Christians. Things were going well for him. But why does he convert if it was not for an encounter with the resurrected Christ? One last piece of evidence is that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we have a teaching of the resurrection that we can trace back to within a couple years of the actual historical event. So we have the, the record of resurrection being taught soon afterwards. And, and if it wasn't true, people could just go, they could just recover the body, they could present evidence. But for somehow, this thing was being taught, despite the fact it was culturally despised, despite the, thing, uh, the fact it was at complete odds with the theological system of the day. Why was it? And I would suggest that the best way to understand all this, the, the reason that Christianity came to flourish despite these challenges, is by the fact that historical resurrection actually happened. This is really good evidence that there was a historical resurrection. Because what else could explain it? One individual put it this way. He says, there's a, there's a resurrection-sized hole in history. That the only way to understand history is by recognizing that there was this event called the resurrection. Because otherwise, what's the cause that could explain these events? What's the cause that could explain why Paul would convert? And why the disciples would go from being afraid to becoming bold? And why the church would flourish despite the fact the leader had been crucified in this shameful way? And so there's really good historical reasons to believe in the resurrection. But here's my point. Faith means more than recognizing that there's really good historical evidence to believe in the resurrection. Faith is saying, here's the evidence, really good compelling historical evidence, other lines of evidence we could explore as well. But now, I'm going to take the step of trusting in the resurrected Christ. Of entering into a relationship with him. Of coming to a knowledge of God that's more than just this knowledge of history, Right? And so faith is grounded in the evidence. It's not going against the evidence. The evidence is pointing some way and says, it looks like this resurrection thing is true, that there was this resurrected Christ. And then faith is us stepping into that and saying, okay, I'm going to begin to trust this resurrected Christ. I'm going to enter into community with him. I'm going to enter into knowledge with him, relationship with him. And so that's what faith is. And so as we're doing arguments, we can present this first stuff. The ways of the historical evidence make sense. But we also must, at some point, invite individuals to take that step. Right? And ultimately, they're unable to do that apart from the power of God. And so, us trying to reach people isn't merely an intellectual task. It's also a, a heart task. We're trying to reach their hearts through our love. And it's a spiritual task. We're praying for the power of the Holy Spirit to help us convict hearts so that they will take that step. I want to pause there. Any questions or comments as we've talked about the nature of faith? Are we clear? Any questions or comments? Let's, um, let's get a mic right here. <clears throat> so how could we uh, tell that to an actual atheist that this was real. Yeah, I mean, so you can go through some of this evidence, right? And there's lots of, um, you can, uh, lots of great sources. You can look like the case for Christ and elsewhere. We can go through this in much more detail. Here I was trying to give a very rapid summary just as an example. But you can present some of the historical evidence. You can point to the fact that in addition to the gospel, we have independent sources that verify the, the basic data. That there was a historical person named Jesus, that he was crucified, that 
his believers testify to his resurrection soon thereafter. And so you can go through some of that historical data that the tomb was empty, right? There seems to be really good historical agreement that somehow the tomb was empty. Not all agree that there was a resurrection, but the question is, well, what explains all these data points taken as a whole? Let's get one more comment right here. So I was talking to a co-worker and I wanted to like tell him about Jesus and yeah. he's he's uh, from the Muslim faith yeah. and he told me that you know Jesus is real yeah. and but he was not crucified. Yeah. And so so this is view that um, some Muslims hold that it was just it was made to appear as if Christ was crucified, but some believe that some other individual, um, possibly Barabbas, took his place on the cross, and it depends which sect you're speaking with. And so that, that is a barrier. Uh, I would challenge that point, though, in that the one point in which there's unanimous historical agreement is the crucifixion of Christ, that he was crucified. And so the historical evidence alone seems to really, it's very challenging to maintain the view that he wasn't crucified. Of course, the Muslim may have other commitments that lead them in teaching, uh, believing the authority of the Quran that may lead them to a position. So it may not be an easy sell, right? Okay, one last, one last comment. And then I want us to um, look at some specific objections to belief in God and how we might respond to them. Yeah. So there, I'm going to simplify a lot. Yeah. Uh, there are these two opposing arguments. Uh, not opposing, but complementary arguments. That he was seen and that the tomb was empty. Yeah. If the tomb is empty, but yeah. he wasn't seen, the body was stolen. So if, it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if the opposite is true, yeah. that uh, he was seen, but the tomb wasn't empty, then he was a spirit or something that appears, or yeah. a hallucination. Yeah. And uh, those two complementary together, they, they bring a lot of power to the evidence of uh, the resurrection too. That's right, because if the body had simply been stolen, it wouldn't explain why Paul converted, it wouldn't explain why the disciples became emboldened to share the gospel, even at the, the risk of their lives, right? And so if it's simply, um, some of these other theories, they may explain why the tomb's empty, but they fail to explain the evidence as a whole. Okay, what I want us to do now is I want to move into some specific objections to the existence of God. Um, these are things that often come up in speaking to individuals who may identify as atheists or in online communities. And what I want us to do is systematically go through these. Now, we're going to be focusing on the arguments themselves. But I've tried to emphasize that faith is ultimately more than argument, right? So it's really important that, that as we enter into these things, we're not just appealing to the head. We're also trying to reach people's hearts. We're praying for the power of God, not just to lead them to believe that this is true, but to act on that belief of saving faith in Christ. So, so there's more than just the arguments. But I think it is important that we do have to understand at least the arguments so that we can give credible responses. And so what I have is eight objections that I want us to systematically move through and think about how we can respond to them. The first objection is that there's a presumption of atheism. That, that is, only the, the, the theist has a burden of proof. That means you enter into a discussion that theist is making the claim there is a God, and he or she must prove it, but the atheist's position is the default position. Has anyone ever heard something like this before? My question is, how would you respond to it? Would someone like to offer a response? How might you respond to this claim? That only the, the theist has to present evidence that the atheist has the, the default position that should be assumed. 
How might you respond to that? Can we run the mic right here? Yes. There is no fairness there. You want to start from the beginning in the same position, both of uh-huh. you. Okay, so that's, you didn't say that's not fair. Okay, someone else. How might you respond to this objection that only the theist has a burden of proof? The atheist is the default position. Some people say things like, we're all born atheists. You know, as babies, you don't think about God, and so therefore it's the default position. Well, let's look at what atheism actually says. Atheism proper is the claim that there is no God. Now, that is a knowledge claim. To say that there is no God is a claim to knowledge. And therefore, if you're making a knowledge claim, there's a burden of proof that comes with it. Yes, the theist does have a burden of proof. We're saying that there exists a God. That is a claim to knowledge. But the atheist is also making a claim to knowledge when he or she says that there is no God. And so since both are making a claim to knowledge... Both must present evidence for that claim. Now, if when someone says atheist, they're really just a weak agnostic. If they're really simply saying, I don't know if there is a God, then they have no burden of proof. They're not making a claim to knowledge. When you say, I don't know if there's a God, all you're doing is confessing that you're ignorant. Right? You're just saying, I don't know. And that's fine. But, but when someone says they're an atheist, they're, simple, they're typically saying something a little bit more than they're agnostic, that they don't know if there's a God. And so when someone said they have no burden of proof, we'll say, well, what's your position? If your position is simply that you're ignorant on the topic, I agree. You, you, you have no burden of proof, but you're probably very interested in hearing why I believe there is a God. But if their position is that there is no God, that they're an atheist, then they're actually making a knowledge claim that needs to be supported by some kind of evidence. There's also a strong form of agnosticism, where some say, not only I don't know if there's a God, but that nobody can know if there's a God. That the existence of God is so great and such a grand topic, how can we as finite humans know? But notice that is also a knowledge claim. Now they're not just confessing ignorance. They're not just saying, I don't know. They're actually making a claim to knowledge saying that nobody can know. And so the takeaway here is whenever someone makes a claim to knowledge, that claim to knowledge comes with the need to present evidence for it. As a theist, absolutely, there's a need for us to present evidence for our position but also for one who makes a claim to knowledge that there is no God, or you cannot know if there's a God. These are equally claims to knowledge that must also be supported by some form of knowledge, some form of of evidence. The second objection goes like this. Belief in God is just like belief in Santa Claus, or belief in fairies, or the Easter bunnies, or something ridiculous like that. Christmas recently happened. I'm in a number of online groups, atheist groups, and a number of them were making this comparison you know, Santa Claus is just like Jesus or just like God. So believing in God is just like believing in Santa Claus. The assumption being that's ridiculous. Of course, religion is ridiculous. Therefore, you shouldn't believe in God. How might you respond to this? Anyone want to offer a response? Let's get their mic up here really fast. No, I'm not saying uh, I'm not saying you should get into like a, a six-page online debate. I'm just off, I'm just asking how might we respond to this objection? What is an intellectual response to this objection? Now, when you actually engage in a discussion with someone, you can think about how you're going to craft the response and how you're going to do it in love, right? But what, how might we respond respond to the objection itself? Yeah, right back here. We have a hand up. 
how do we respond to the objection that belief in God is just like belief in Santa Claus? So I had I kind of had a discussion with somebody on this. Yeah. I was, I was wondering if you're an atheist, why do you spend so much of your time trying to ridicule God mm. when you don't do that with Santa or the Easter Bunny? Like, I yeah. can prove Santa doesn't exist, you know? They spend most of their time trying to debunk God that doesn't exist. Why waste mm. your time? Yeah, probably they don't run up to kids in shopping malls and be like, he's a fake, right? <laughs> yeah, that's probably not too many people trying to do that. Well, I believe there are three good reasons why this is a fallacious claim. The first is that all over the world, adults come to believe in God. I, I saw earlier today, I polled, and a number of us didn't come to believe in God until we were in our teens or 20s or 30s or later, right? And so all over the world, people come to believe in God, but people don't come to believe in Santa when they grow up, right? People universally abandon belief in Santa. There's a second reason, and that there's no compelling reasons to believe in Santa. Tomorrow, as we talk about um, science, I'm going to try and offer a number of compelling reasons why we should believe in God. Now, even if one objects those reasons are not compelling, you need to demonstrate that the reason is not compelling. But no one even tries to offer reasons to believe in Santa, right? No, no serious individual makes serious claims that Santa exists. There is no even attempt to give reasons for belief in Santa. And the last one is, we have compelling reasons not to believe in Santa, right? I mean, we, we know where Christmas presents come from. Right? It's not a great mystery. Uh, when you grow up, you learn about the... Oh, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who maybe doesn't know, right? But, but there's, kind of a, there's kind of an inside job going on there. So, so we have compelling reasons to believe in Santa, to not believe in Santa, and there's no compelling reason to believe in Santa. Whereas the Christian claims and has offered what I believe are compelling reasons to believe in God, and, and we, don't have, we haven't found compelling reasons not to believe in God. So if the atheist wants to support this claim, what he would have to do is he would have to explain why adults come to believe in God and not in Santa. He would have to go through and show that all the reasons Christians give to believe in God are not compelling. And he would also have to show that there's some compelling reason not to believe in God. It's not enough to simply make this claim. We actually have to examine the evidence. Next objection. You just believe in God to make yourself feel good. Maybe about death or a tragedy or something like this. Who's heard this objection before? You just believe in God to make yourself feel good. How might you respond to it? Yeah, we have a hand right here. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. So, okay. you know, Christianity yeah. isn't a feel-good religion. Good. Following, you might yeah. just emphasize, you know, paying 10% of my money in tithe and a seventh of my time, and living sacrificially. This isn't the most uh, easygoing religion, right? So that's, that's absolutely, you can make that point. Uh, uh, one more up here. We're thinking about how to respond to these objections. <coughs> yeah. I was told before that I, believe, uh, that I believe in God because I'm afraid of death. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, because... I'm afraid what will happen afterwards. Yep. And um, I made it perfectly clear that one, I became a Christian not because, not out of fear, not, but out of love. Good. And that's ultimately why I believe in God. Mm-hmm. So this might be a really good chance to help clarify your faith. And that I don't just live with the threat of hell over me, right? That I actually have good reasons to be attracted to the Christian faith. Well, I think there are two other ways we might respond. 
One is to point out that the exact same critique can be made of atheism. Right? You just believe in atheism to make yourself feel good so that you're not accountable to anyone. You don't have to be afraid of judgment. So that, you know, you can make the exact same critique. But the problem is that this kind of this kind of psychologizing, this kind of giving some, you just believe this because of this, isn't actually evidence for or against either one. You can do it either way. You just believe in God to make yourself feel good. You just deny God's existence so you can live however you want. Right? You can say these things, but they're not actually examining the evidence. And so what I really want to do is to invite people, let's move past this name-calling to actually examining the evidence. This, this kind of thing can go both ways. Let's actually move to looking at the evidence. Objection four. If you were born somewhere else, you would believe in a different God or no God in, at all. If you were born in Saudi Arabia, you, know, you would have a different religion. Or if you were born in India or if you were born you know, wherever, Japan, you may believe something different. So you just believe the way you believe because of where you were born. Just a geographical accident that you believe this way. How might you respond to this objection? Yeah, we have a hand right back here. So, in a religious point of view, uh, I actually met this person, met this individual this morning, actually, and he said he has a friend who was a Mormon. Yeah. But then, he, as he was studying the Mormon, uh, the Mormon Bible, or, and he was looking at the Mormon Bible with the actual with the Bible, yeah. and it don't add up. And with Joseph Smith, um, I believe, he had many wives, and some of the wives were, you know, I guess were uh, committing adultery. And that doesn't correspond with the Bible. So he became an atheist after that. Because, and then as he would start learning more about the Bible himself, he, because he had the foundation, oh, there is a God. Uh-huh. But as he started studying by himself, that he converted to Adventism. So it proves that no matter where you are at, somehow or some way, God finds an opportunity for you to seek truth. And he found it by himself, but with the guidance of his friend. This is fantastic. So you're pointing out that you're not locked into what you're born. It's not like you're born in Utah and you're fated to be a Mormon. That people convert. And you just gave a story of someone who who moved from one worldview to another to another. That people are not uh, stagnant, that they're dynamic, and that their views change over time as they study and evaluate the evidence. And so I think that's a great response. This objection fails to recognize that Christianity is a global presence and that people are constantly converting from all kinds of different backgrounds. This uh, objection also commits to what's called the genetic fallacy. So what the genetic fallacy does is it attempts to discredit a belief by giving some account of where it came from rather than looking at the validity of the belief itself. So let me give you an analogous objection. Saying if you're born somewhere else, you would believe in some other God is like saying... Well, you know, if we were born in a different time, 100, 1,000, 3,000 years ago, we would probably believe false things too. We would believe the sun orbited the earth. We would believe that there's only one galaxy instead of recognizing that there are billions and billions of galaxies, right? But that's not an argument for any of these beliefs, right? It's true that the, perhaps the only reason you believe that the uh, sun orbits the earth is because you were born after the Copernican Revolution, right? But that doesn't, doesn't say that, that, therefore, that belief is wrong. Simply giving an account of why someone holds a belief doesn't establish or deny the belief. Rather, we need to look at reasons for the belief itself. Okay, next objection. Number five, we're looking at eight objections to the existence of God. 
We're trying to take the counsel of First Peter that says always be prepared to give a response to those who ask you for a reason for the hope that's in you. You already reject thousands of gods. Why not just go one step further? So some put it this way. They say, you're already an atheist with respect to Zeus and Thor and Odin and Poseidon. Why not just go one step further? How might you respond to this objection? Right here, we have a hand. You already, in, you already reject thousands and thousands of gods. I think I would say there's significant evidence to say that the God I believe right now uh-huh. actually is a true God and not a false okay. God. So you'd say that there's something that differentiates the God you believe in from these other gods. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Scripture takes this approach. That the God of Scripture is distinct from all these other gods. One of my favorite verses that highlights this is, is Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 through 10, where God says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. A number of attributes of God are emphasized in this verse. The first is that God is eternal which already distinguishes God from these other gods. If you look at Thor and Zeus and these other gods, each one has a theogony. A theogony is an account of where the gods came from. These gods were born to these other gods, who came from these other gods, who were born out of the chaos. The God of Bible is quite unique in that he is an eternal God, unlike the gods of the Greeks or the Romans or the Babylonians. He's also an omnipotent and omniscient God. Omnipotent means he's all-powerful, and omniscient he's all-knowing. When you look at these other gods, you look at the Greek gods, and, and they're constantly being deceived or deceiving each other, then while they're powerful, they're not omnipotent. They're bound by fate or other forces, other cosmic forces. And so we see that the God of Scripture really is quite unique from the other gods. And so now that we've established that the God of Scripture is unique, he has unique attributes from the other gods... Therefore, there may be reason to believe in this God and reject the other ones. I mean, it's kind of a silly argument. Who here is married? A number of people are married? Okay, so there are thousands of men in the world you're not married to. Why don't you go one step further? There are thousands of men you're not married to. Why not go one step further and reject all men? I mean, of course, we recognize that's silly. We know there's a world of difference between being committed to one person and being entirely celibate or cut off from all individuals, right? So all all the time, you know, you you have an exam. I'm I'm a math professor. You're taking some math exam. You know, the first question, what is five times five? Uh, Usually the question's a little more difficult than that, but, you know, five times five. What if I would say to you, there were thousands of wrong answers... So why, why don't you just commit to there being no answer? Well, just because there's thousands of wrong answers doesn't mean that there's no right answer, right? Just because there's thousands of people you don't commit your life to doesn't mean that there isn't going to be one person you do commit your life to. And just because there are thousands of gods we reject, that doesn't mean that there's not good evidence for us to accept the God of Scripture, especially because the God of Scripture is altogether unlike these other gods. He's the eternal, omnipotent, omniscient God. Okay. Do we have a quick question right here? Let's get a quick comment, and then we will move on to our next objection. 
a friend of mine uh, said that he believed in all of those gods. Yeah. Under with the god of the Bible at the very top. Mm-hmm. And then Zeus, Hades, uh, Thor, Odin. Yeah. All of them below him. He must have a lot of holidays to celebrate. <laughs> But the, um, the problem there is, is a lot of these beliefs are self-contradictory, right? And so we see where God distinguishes himself, and, and God makes unique claims to divinity. And so some beliefs are simply not compatible. And so you could help your friend to, to reason through and think through and see how these beliefs are not necessarily compatible with each other. Let's go ahead and look So we're talking about the God of the Bible and how he has these attributes. Some object to the possibility that there is a God with these attributes. For instance, some object to the omnipotence of God. You might have heard something like this. The very idea of omnipotence, of being all-powerful, is absurd. Can God make 2 plus 2 equal 5? Can he make a square circle? Can he make a stone so heavy he can't lift it? Or other absurd things. So this is an objection to the very idea of omnipotence. You claim you believe in this God, and he's unique from these other gods because he's eternal, omnipotent, omniscient. But then the objection becomes, but those attributes are are ridiculous, are absurd, because how could God do these ridiculous things? Have you heard anything like this before, this kind of objection? Yeah, how would we respond to it? We have a comment right here. We're thinking about the omnipotence of God. Can God do things like make 2 plus 2 equal 5? Or other logical contradictions? So how would you know it, it is absurd? Do you possess absolute truth? Mm. Very good. So to even be able to make this critique, you're saying it appeals to some kind of, you have some kind of standard by which you judge truth. And you can ask the basis of that standard. And you can then maybe see that it's pretty tough to give an account for that absolute standard apart from an absolute lawgiver such as God. Oh, that's a very good critique. Well, here's one thing I'll point out. Scripture teaches the Lord does whatever pleases him. Psalm 135, verse 6. Now, this is omnipotence, but it's not omnipotence to be understood as God does anything. It's God does anything that pleases him. Do you see the distinction? In Scripture, we don't find that God does whatever, any arbitrary thing. Rather, he acts according to his good pleasure. Augustine reflected and put it out like this. He says, God is called omnipotent on account of him doing what he wills, not on account of him suffering what he wills not. For if that should befall him, he would by no means be omnipotent. Wherefore, he cannot do some things For the very reason he is omnipotent. Being omnipotent means that God does what he pleases. It doesn't mean that he has to do all these other things that he doesn't please. And therefore Augustine recognized, this is 4th century, Augustine's writing. He says, omnipotence isn't God doing whatever he wants. It's God can do anything that's in accordance with his good pleasure. Scripture accords us all kinds of things that God cannot do. That may sound kind of weird. God's omnipotent. But if omnipotence is him doing what he pleases, there are things he cannot do. For instance, God cannot lie. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament testify to this fact. Why can God not lie? 
because he takes no pleasure in deceit. The New Testament puts it like this. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, we're told that if we are faithless, God remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. That God does not act in a way that's in contradiction with his character or his nature. So this is how it plays out. To act wickedly would deny God's holiness. So God cannot act wickedly. He's omnipotent. He can do whatever he pleases. But because he's holy, he cannot act in contradiction to that. To act unjustly would deny God's justice. So God cannot act unjustly. He's omnipotent. He can do whatever he pleases. But he takes no pleasure in injustice. To act irrationally, responding to the original objection, would deny God's rationality. That God is a rational mind. He's a rational being. So God doesn't act arbitrarily. He doesn't do things like make square circles or make stones so big he can't lift it. He doesn't do logical absurdities because he acts consistently with his character and nature. The reason I quoted from Augustine here in the 4th century was to point out that this isn't some ad hoc definition of omnipotence. This is how Christians for thousands of years have understood the power of God. That as scripture says, God acts according to his pleasure. And so this Objection to omnipotence is simply a misunderstanding of what we mean by omnipotence. Back to how we have misunderstanding of what the word faith means. Again, there seems to be a misunderstanding of omnipotence. Omnipotence is not that God acts arbitrarily or does any old thing. Omnipotence is God is all-powerful to bring about his will, to bring about his pleasure in accordance with his nature, in accordance with his character. God is not an arbitrary God. There's a similar objection to the attributes of God, and this one focuses on his omniscience, the fact that God knows everything. In particular, God's knowledge of the future. It objects like this. Omniscience is not compatible with free will. If God already knows how we're going to choose, then we're not really free to choose. Who's heard this objection before? Yeah, this is a very common one, right? The objection objection seems to present three possibilities. The first is you can reject the foreknowledge. You can reject that God knows the future. The second possibility is you can reject free will. You can reject that creatures really are free. Or the third possibility is you can respond to the objection and point out why the objection is fallacious, why it's poor reasoning. Interestingly enough, Christians do all three. Some reject the foreknowledge of God. Open theism is an expression of, of Christian doctrine that says God doesn't actually have knowledge of the future. Some reject free will. Some Christians believe that we're not actually free, that the sovereignty of God means that he's in absolute control of everything, that we don't actually act freely, that it's true. We, we don't really have free choice. But some have all tried to respond to the objection. And I think that's what we should do in verse, uh, uh, take option three. We, we should be hesitant to reject foreknowledge and free will. Scripture testifies to both realities. And rather, we should see what's wrong with this objection. So can anyone identify an error of reasoning in this objection? How would you respond to the claim, if God knows your choice, you're not really free to make it? Yeah, we have a hand right here. I think because they are opposite situations, knowing is not necessarily uh, changing conscience of someone. Mm. I can know what a child will do, but not necessarily exert an influence in his conscience for what he is going to choose. Excellent. So, knowing something is not determining it, right? In the same way that if you have some parameter that measures the weather, 
It indicates what the weather is, but it's not causing the weather, right? You, the speedometer in your car indicates your speed, knows your speed in that sense, but it's not causing your speed. You're causing the speed by putting your foot down too low, right? So this is a really good uh, response. You can point out that God foreknows you choose X because you choose X. The foreknowledge doesn't determine your choice. Rather, it's your choice that determines what God foreknows. That is, God sees your choice, but you're the one who chooses it. It's getting the causality backwards to think that God knowing your choice is him causing your choice. Rather, it's you making the choices of what causes God to have that knowledge. The causality goes the other way. Yeah, one more comment right here. That okay. I have, I have a question. Yeah. Uh, maybe you can enlighten me a little bit on that. If we answer that way, then um, we may say, "Are we robots?" Because we act based entirely on cause and effect, like a mathematical formula that God has about us. That you give this as input. This is the output that comes from me. No, I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that God knows we're going to act a particular way because we act that way. That us making that free choice, that's the cause. And the effect is God knows it. I'm not saying that our actions are entirely determined by some mathematical law or something like this. So uh, one can go back to the objection, though. They might say, but, but given that God already knows that I'm going to choose X instead of Y, is it still possible for me to choose Y? There's two choices before you, X and Y. God has foreknowledge. Suppose he already knows I'm going to choose X. Is it possible for me to choose Y? And if not, doesn't that mean I don't really have free will? This is the objection again. I'm trying to give some more force to it. I'm trying to make it as strong as possible. But this seems to confuse the matter. When you say, given that God already knows I'm going to choose X instead of Y, what does that mean? Why does God know you're going to choose X instead of Y? Because God has foreknowledge. And so God knows that because you freely choose X, right? So when you say, God knows I'm going to choose X instead of Y, well, God would only know that if you freely choose X instead of Y. So what you're really saying when you ask, if God knows I'm going to choose X instead of Y, I can still choose Y, you're really asking, given that I freely choose X instead of Y, can I still choose Y? Well, but that doesn't make any sense. You just said, well, you're given that you freely choose X instead of Y. No, you can't choose Y. Not if you freely choose X. <laughs> but you could have chosen Y. And if you had chosen Y, then God would have known it. Do we see it? Your choice is what's causing God's foreknowledge. It's not that God's foreknowledge is causing your choice. So we can formalize this. I'm a mathematician, so I decided to, to formalize this in terms of modal logic. It's an it's a area of logic that looks at necessity and possibility. And so you formalize it this way. Premise one, necessarily, if God knows you will choose X, you will choose X. This is true. If God knows something, then he has accurate foreknowledge of what happened. Premise two, God knows you will choose X. The objection seems to be that necessarily you will choose X. But logically, this does not follow. In motor logic, logically, all that follows is that you will choose X. That's how God knew you would choose X. But you could have also chosen Y, in which case God would have known it. (sighs) Are we on the same page? Okay. 
So omniscience does not deny the possibility of free will, but possibly atheism does. Sam Harris, an outspoken atheist, has written a book where he claims that free will is an illusion. And he's not alone. Others like Richard Dawkins have claimed the same. He says, I have a materialistic view of the world. That is, I have a view of the world that everything is just atoms in motion, just material. I think that things are determined in a rational way by antecedent events. If I want to know what happens, I, I look at the antecedent events, that there's some formula that describes it, and, and I will determine what happens in the next moment. He says, that commits me to the view that when I think I have free will, I'm deluding myself. Harris, Richard Dawkins, Lawrence Krauss, a number of outspoken atheists have, have taken the stance that, that as materialists, we're really just chemicals in motion. In the same way that the outcome of a chemical reaction is determined by natural law, so are your choices. You simply have an illusion of free will. Now, conveniently, they say, your choice is such a complicated chemical reaction, we can't really understand it or predict it, so it seems like you have free will. But really, since you're just material, since we're just atoms in motion, there is no free will. And so, interestingly enough, the atheist finds himself in a position denying human free will. He doesn't have a rich view of humans made in the image of God as rational beings who can, who can choose freely. It's, we're simply material. And if we're simply material, then how can we freely choose? All choices are determined by the material that constitutes us, by our environments, by, by all these factors, right? That some machine, and if it had perfect knowledge of every atom in the universe, could predict all of our choices with perfect accuracy. What is problems with this? What does that mean for morality? What does that mean for good and evil? What does it mean, how do we hold people accountable for the choices they make? What's moral responsibility come to? If your choices are programmed by nature, then how could any of your choices be possibly good or evil? Also, what comes of truth? If you simply believe the things you believe because of some kind of programming, because that's what the atoms in motion determine then why would you believe those things are true? How about you believe about free will? How could you have a belief about free will if it's just programmed? Right? So, so this seems to be a very difficult position to hold because all of these aspects of being human, what does it mean for love and relationships if it's just chemical reactions? Right? It seems to deny those things that are fundamental to the human experience. I want to suggest, therefore, that belief in God affords a richer, nobler picture of what it means to be human. They give significance to our choices. They're not just programming. They're not just atoms in motion. But they actually are significant choices. And they make sense of our deepest longings. Apart from belief in God, we lose the, the richness that allows us to affirm human freedom. The last objection. It's a humble position to remain agnostic about God. The humble thing to do is just to leave it an open question. I've heard this a number of times. And, you know, I, I encourage my students to have critical thinking. And so part of me is like, that's great. You know, you, you want to take a critical stance and you don't want to adopt a position too early. You want to evaluate all the evidence. But you can't stay here forever. Because in order for you to grow and to experience more progress, to grow as a human, you must have some standard higher than yourself that you submit yourself to. See, if we're always standing over everything else and, and, and weighing it, 
then there's nothing left to stand over us and weigh our lives. But we need something to stand over us, to measure us, so that we can actually recognize deficiencies and grow. To, to not subject yourself to something greater is to exclude the possibility of true moral progress, of, of true transformation. Moreover, if God has truly revealed himself, then ignoring his revelation isn't humility, but, it, but it's foolish. Ellen White puts it this way in Patriarchs and Prophets. I end with this quote. Many wonder in the mazes of philosophy in search of reasons and evidence which they will never find while they reject the evidence which God has been pleased to give. They refuse to walk in the light of the sun of righteousness until the reason of its shining shall be explained. This is really important because people can continue to multiply their objections. And at some point we have to say, we, you can keep going down that road if you want, but here's the evidence that God has provided. Let's take that seriously. Let's, let's take the evidence that is presented and, and take that seriously rather than continuing to multiply and multiply and going down all the roads of well, what ifs and, and maybes and I don't knows. Because ultimately, we need to recognize something greater than ourselves if we are to have any kind of moral progress in our lives. Well, let me end there. We're out of time. I'll say a word of prayer. Uh, as a quick reminder where we're going next, tomorrow morning we'll be looking at science and faith. We'll ask first the question, has science replaced faith? And then we'll ask the question about Genesis. How should we think about and understand Genesis today? Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, we've taken some time to review these objections. We want to be faithful to your word where it tells us to be always prepared to give a response to those who ask us for a reason for the hope that's in us. Father, I pray that this time was beneficial to help prepare us. But we recognize that our preparation goes beyond merely analyzing arguments. Our preparation is found in spending time with you, where our own hearts are transformed, where we ourselves become agents of love, so that when individuals see that love, they're drawn to something more. They recognize that there's a fuller way to live. There's more to the human experience. Father, we want to have that experience too. So we pray that today as we continue our activities in GYC, be it outreach and time in the prayer room and time listening to great messages, that our heart is drawn closer to you, that we may be transformed more into your likeness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.